It doesn't take much experience in the Christian world to observe various instances of falling away of one kind or another. An 18-year-old brought up in a Christian home and apparently stalwart goes off to universities uh, to university in May for a period of time wander into biblical theological Christian oblivion may never come back or may come back in year three or four or ten years later maybe when he or she is married and has a child of their own but we see it often enough or sometimes we see people who seem to float along in the Christian way until they experience some huge tragedy friend of mine in Australia lost her surgeon husband at the age of 33 and um, is just finding it very, very difficult to stabilize out. Many of these, of course, eventually come back. Some after some rather shocking years in the wilderness. I could tell you many stories. But then there are still more disturbing cases. Is there anybody in this room who doesn't know the name Billy Graham. But when Billy Graham was beginning to crest in the world of North American evangelicalism, in fact, he was eclipsed by someone with an even greater name, and I doubt if anybody here knows that name now. His name was Charles Templeton. He was considered a better preacher than Graham. He drew larger crowds. In fact, a friend of mine, now gone to be with the Lord, he was minister of a church in Toronto and was organizing a Toronto-wide crusade, as they were called in those days, and it came down to a choice between Charles Templeton and Billy Graham. They chose Templeton. But a few years later, Templeton disavowed the entire faith that he had been preaching, under whom thousands had been converted and ended up as a Canadian TV announcer and... (laughs) eventually died a few years ago, an agnostic. What do you do with that? Once saved, always saved? When we try to think our way through the Old Testament examples and New Testament examples, we discover a lot of uh, diversity. The images that are used are pretty shocking, some of them. Very frequently, apostasy turning aside from a position you have held, is viewed as a kind of spiritual adultery. That's very common from Deuteronomy on. Two of the most shocking chapters in all of Holy Writ are Ezekiel 16 and 23. They're meant to be vulgar, and they are, in order to show just how vulgar spiritual adultery can be. And one whole prophecy in the Old Testament Uh, turns on building on this image, the prophecy of Hosea, where God presents himself as the almighty cuckold, that is the betrayed husband, the ultimate betrayed husband. When I was courting the woman who is now my wife, again many moons ago, we're coming up to 37 years, when we were courting at Cambridge, um, her mother, who is sort of a middle-of-the-road, never-go-to-church Anglican, uh, she came to our church in, in Cambridge just because we were courting and she thought she ought to. She came down and, and went to church with us. And 
the minister at the time was a chap called David Smith, who was given to these detailed, systematic expositions of Scripture. And lo and behold, because God has a sense of humor, that day David was beginning the prophecy of Hosea. And uh, it was a 50-minute exposition, which was not a very Anglican thing to do. And he went on and on and on about the background of Hosea and whether he married Gomer before she became a prostitute or she became a prostitute later and then go, he's told to go on and, and, and make sure he pursues her and have another child by her even after her, her, her uh, prostitution has been sorted out and so on, so on, so on. And I glanced over and I could see my future mother-in-law's eyes, uh, mother-in-law's eyes getting bigger and bigger and bigger as we walked out. She turned to my future bride and said, um, that book isn't in the Anglican Bible, is it? <laughs> and you realize there are these, these huge swaths of scripture that use extraordinarily colorful language to talk about falling away in various fashions. Being cut off from your people, for example, a very common linguistic expression in the Old Testament. There are some, like the sons of Korah, who rebel and are destroyed. There are others, like Moses, who defaults on one or two crucial areas and who is certainly preserved as a man of God, but who, nevertheless, at the end of the day, is not permitted into the promised land. There are temporal judgments and entailments. Supposing I said, what would you make of an ostensible Christian who arrogantly tells the Lord Jesus what to do and where to step off? and then later disowns him with violent curses. Is that man a believer or not? His name is Peter. Supposing I described another man, what would you make of a man who, so far as we know, made only one really terrible mistake? Though apparently he was a little loose in his accounting, but one really terrible mistake. Should he be written off? His name is Judas Iscariot of whom Jesus says it would have been better for him if he had never been born. How do we view this whole business of falling away of different types? What language shall we use? How do we think about it? How do we apply it to ourselves? The scriptures are full of encouragements to persons to persevere, to stay the course. We've seen them already. That was what 3.14 was about, wasn't it? In fact, it's what all of 3.7 all the way to 4.13 is about in, in substance, and not to be like those who hardened their heart and fell away, never did get into the promised land. Technically, any falling away from a position that one once held is apostasy. That's all that apostasy means, apa from stasi, where one stands. So it's falling away from where one stands which by itself, so far as the word meaning is concerned, doesn't say anything about whether one finally is saved or not. Yet the flavor of the term apostasy in English usage, in English theological usage, is always much more negative than merely stereotypical etymological analyses. Um, and then we remember that in this book, Hebrews, there are warnings against falling into apostasy. There's a whole series of them. For example, the opening verses of chapter 2. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, that is, we Christians, so that we do not drift away. 
For since the message spoken through angels was binding, that is in Old Testament terms at the giving of the law in Moses' day, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? This salvation which was first announced by the Lord was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. And then chapter 4, verses 12 to 13 that we looked at in the previous section, it has a built-in warning in effect, isn't it? Doesn't it? And now we're coming to another one, chapter 5, verse 11, to chapter 6, verse 12. And then there's still another one. There are two or three others, but the next really large one is in chapter 10. And they really are quite frightening. Let me read this one, however, 5.11 and following. The author has been building up several times, sidling up to the theme of Melchizedek. But before he finally gets to it in chapter 7, which theme we'll look at tonight, he stops yet again, backs up, and offers a warning. And he writes... We have much to say about this, that is about Melchizedek, but it is hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk being still an infant is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instruction about cleansing rites, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment, and God permitting, we will do so. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. To their loss they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed, receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are convinced of better things in your case, the things that have to do with salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realized. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. Now what I intend to do in the next uh, few minutes is run through this passage rather briefly. I'm not going to take time on each verse. There isn't enough time to do it adequate justice. But to focus especially on 6, 4 and following and think with you the question of um, apostasy and Christian assurance and the like, um, both in a sort of theoretical way and then at a personal pastoral level.
Four questions. Number one, what in general leads to apostasy? What in general leads to apostasy? 5, 11 to 14. Verse 11, we have much to say about this, but it is hard to make it clear to you because you... Now in Greek, it's just one word after that. Because you are nothroi. It's a very uncommon word. The same word is found in the last verse of this unit. That is down in chapter 6, verse 12. We do not want you to become nothroi. My version has lazy. In other words, the passage begins and ends with the same rather rare word. This is a literary device called an inclusion. When you begin and end something with the same word, especially when it's a rare word, not something like the, which keeps showing up everywhere, then it's, it's a way of stamping the whole paragraph by saying everything between those two borders is, is addressing this particular question. So what does it mean to be no throy? Well, lazy, I suppose, sluggish, hard of hearing, not sufficiently focused to pay attention. It's a kind of culpable indifference to the word of God. That's why it's somewhat paraphrastically rendered in my version. We have much to say about this because it is hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. That is, you're too flaming lazy. You're too sluggish. And then the same laziness is picked up at the end of the passage. In other words, what's presupposed that it, is that in order to persevere, you, you will try to understand the Word of God, which means at very least that you'll read it and think about it and weigh it up and study it if you like. In one sense, of course, this is the sort of thing that is said constantly in Scripture. When um, Joshua takes over, he's told in Joshua 1, this book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night. Then you shall make your way prosperous. Then you shall have good success. It's, it's the sort of thing that a king in Israel was, was told to do when he first became the king, according to Deuteronomy 17, 18 and following. The first thing he's supposed to do is not check the financial records of his predecessor or appoint a new secretary of state or minister of war or whatever. The first thing he's supposed to do is take out his quill pen and copy longhand the, book, the words of this law, he says, taken from the priests, and then he's supposed to read it every day. So... He can't simply photocopy it. There aren't machines to do that. There's no way he can download it from an MP3 or, or, or from an internet connection onto his hard drive without it passing through anybody's brain. What he's got to do is copy it with a quill pen in such neat writing that that becomes his reading copy, which he is then to read every day for the rest of his life. That's what he's told to do. Deuteronomy 17, 18 and following. And he does this, we're told, so that he will not think more of himself than he ought to. And so that he will learn to revere God's words and not turn aside from the left to the, to the left or to the right. In other words, if just those three verses from Deuteronomy 17 had been obeyed throughout the history of the kings of Israel, the entire history would have been different. But you see, they were too nothroi. They were too flaming lazy or interested in other things. They'd become sluggish with respect to the word of God, with respect to the teaching of God. You see, it just doesn't happen that somebody is a really keen Christian and then suddenly, like that, 
turns around and says, I don't believe that rubbish anymore. I think I'll shack up with whomever I want to shack up. It doesn't happen like that. There is always a series, maybe of 10,000 little decisions, none of them very important, collectively all of them bad, that drift people away into a carelessness about Scripture, a carelessness about the Gospel, a carelessness about righteousness, a carelessness about integrity, a carelessness about God's words, not revering God's words anymore. You've become no throy. Now that's what's pictured here. In fact, by this time, you ought to be teachers. In other words, it's presupposed that Christians will so mature in their faith that they will be able to pass the material on to others. That doesn't mean that they necessarily have to be teachers who stand at the front and and expound things for great periods of time. It could be one-on-one Bible reading with other people. There's a huge need for people to read the Bible with other people. Older saints with younger saints, more mature Christians with less mature Christians, and, and, and just read the Bible together. That's becoming a teacher, beginning to unpack what the Bible says to others. doesn't take that much time, but it's hugely helpful, both to the person who is being taught and to the teacher himself or herself. But instead, someone needs to teach them the elementary truths of God's word all over again. If you become no throy, then eventually, it's like many, many skills. Use it or lose it. You spend two years learning German and then you never speak a, a word of it again. And after five years, six years, you, you, you can only remember a few expressions. But you, you, you use it or, or, or you lose it. It's the same with many, many things besides learning at an academic setting. If you own a house, you either are improving it or it is falling apart. But it's never just staying where it is. You, you, you work at it or it is collapsing all around you. And the same is true with the Christian way. If you become no throy with respect to the Christian way, then you are on the edge of, of becoming in the dangerous situation that is described by, these, by, by, by the writer regarding these people. So at this point, they still want milk, pablum. Now you have to remember that milk is used as a metaphor in different ways depending on the context. Um, Sometimes milk is seen as the very essence of, of richness, the land of milk and honey, for example, in the Old Testament. Or in 1 Peter 2, 2, Crave spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. On the other hand, in other contexts, milk is contrasted with meat, and it's the food for babies. You find that in 1 Corinthians 3. And also here, their digestive tracts are so bad by reason of a guilty unuse, they are no throy, that they're still not acquainted with teachings about righteousness. Now, what this teaching about righteousness is, people have made various speculations, but in the context of Hebrews, it can only mean all the righteousness that the gospel itself brings once you understand who Christ really truly is as our ultimate priest, the one who brings us our ultimate rest. He's the ultimate temple. He's the ultimate this. He's the ultimate that. This is the real teaching about righteousness. You understand Christ, you understand righteousness, but you're not ready for any of that. You, you, you're, you're, still, you're still presupposing the elementary truths of God's word, happy when they're gone over again because it sort of strokes your feathers. You don't have to think too hard. and this, People are saying reassuring things, but, but you're not growing. But solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good and evil. 
That's an inter- interesting interaction, isn't it? On the one hand, the study of the solid food, and so applying it to life that you train yourself to distinguish good from evil. It's not merely a theoretical discipline, but you're thinking through the word of God and then sorting out what it looks like in ethics, in personal choices, in the priorities of life. What you say and you do, is this good, is this wise, is this helpful? It's the same sort of thing that that Paul has in mind when he prays for the Philippians and prays for the Colossians, that their ability to discern good and evil will grow more and more. It's not merely a theoretical discipline. So that's the first question to ask ourselves. What in general leads to apostasy? Then second, what in this specific case leads to apostasy? Chapter 6, verses 1 to 3. Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instruction about cleansing rites, the laying on of hands, the resurrection from the dead, and eternal judgment, and God permitting, we will do so. In other words, now instead of talking generally about elementary truths and the like, he actually lays some of them out. This seems to be, I know that the paragraph is difficult, but it seems to be the author's list of elementary teachings. How would you like to be told that if you understand and can explain these things, you're just an elementary believer? What are they? Elementary teachings about Christ. Not laying them again. What are they? Instruction regarding... uh, Faith in God and instruction about cleansing rites and laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment. You see, I suspect, I can't quite prove, and I know that there are some interpreters that disagree. I suspect that he is listing the kinds of things that they would have believed already as Jewish believers. In other words, the kind of apostasy that is going on here is not apostasy away from Christian persuasion to hedonism. It's not in this book turning away from God and Christ in order to become a pagan again. Rather, the whole threat in this book is turning away from Christ back to forms of Judaism. That's where apparently they felt secure. That's where the social structures of their day were. And, and yet, if, if you come to Christ and then go back to offering a whole lot of sacrifices in the temple and thinking that's the way to go, and you come to Christ as your great high priest and then say, well, we still need to have a high priest in Jerusalem, otherwise it doesn't really count. Or if you say, yes, well, um, I do trust Christ for my righteousness, but provided I keep the words of the law, well, that's a good thing, otherwise I fall into the curse of Deuteronomy, and so on. Then you're turning away from that to which the law points in favor of going back just to the pointers. Instead of staying with the mature thing, which fulfills the previous material, you're going back to all the baby things. And the baby things include some standard doctrines that are taught by Jews and Christians alike. There's a resurrection that we'll have to face. There's a final judgment. There are matters of, 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 of rites. It's, it's literally baptisms in the original. Well, there were some ablutions that you had to go through under the old covenant, and there's an ablution you have to go through under the new. It's called baptism. Do, 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 do you see? And, and if you just lay these things out again and again and again and again and again, but never actually grasp how the whole Bible is put together and never see how things really do come to a focus in Christ Jesus and how absolutely wonderful that is, then you are in huge danger of sliding away. You either use it or lose it. You either grow or you die. Now, I wish I could um, unpack 
those three verses at greater length, but I'm going to press on so I can come to verses 4 to 8. Here's where I'll spend most of my time now. What, then, is apostasy? That's the third question. What is apostasy? It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted of the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. So what here is in view? Some have argued this is falling away from service. That is, it's not falling away from the faith in some ultimate sense. It doesn't mean that you're truly saved and now you're truly lost. Rather, it means something like you were saved and fruitful and producing genuine transformative witness that saw people converted and so forth, and now you've sinned so badly that you're no longer useful as a Christian. You're saved, but as it were, by the skin of your teeth, so as by fire. The f- expression is often drawn from 1 Corinthians chapter 3. You're saved in that sense, but, but it's, it's, it's not full-orbed blessing of, of fruitfulness all the rest of your life. Now, the advantage of that interpretation, of course, is that it doesn't jeopardize the many, many texts of Scripture, which clearly seem to indicate that if you really are genuinely converted, you, you will be preserved. God knows his own. No one shall pluck them out of my hand, Jesus says in John chapter 10. The, Paul is convinced in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, that he who has begun a good work in you will perform it till the day of Jesus Christ. So many of these passages that speak of ongoing perseverance and so on. So if you take this interpretation, then you... You can still hang on to all of those blessed promises. The trouble is that when you read this text, this sounds a lot more serious than merely falling away from fruitfulness. And if you read the corresponding passage in Hebrews 10, it's even more frightening. It's clear there that you you are falling away to to, to great wrath and, and, and judgment. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, we're told. If we deliberately sin after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God, we're told in Hebrews 10. That doesn't sound like falling away from from fruitful ministry. So, with all due respect to my friends who hold that view, I don't think it squares very well with Scripture. Others hold that this simply means one loses one's salvation. You can be genuinely, thoroughly, completely, unambiguously converted, and then you can lose your salvation. Now, that's a bit different from the view that suggests you can be saved and lost and saved and lost and saved and lost and saved and lost, which some denominations actually teach. You've probably heard the old joke. It's not much of a joke, but it's the best I can do when I've crossed that many time zones. Um, you, you know what the flower of the Calvinist is? The tulip? Be, be because T-U-L-I-M form, uh, T-U-L-I-P forms a, an acrostic. I won't go through that. But you know what the flower of the Arminian is? It's a daisy. He loves me, he loves me not, he loves me. <laughs> That's a terrible joke. 
But, but you see, that's not really, that's not really what's in view by this interpretation either. As if you can gain your salvation, lose your salvation, gain your salvation, lose your salvation. Notice the structure of the thing is one very, very long protasis, one very long if clause. It is impossible for, and now here's the supposition, those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God, the powers of the coming age, and, still part of the if, who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. In other words, on the face of it, whatever this falling away is, it's saying, if you make this kind of falling away, you never can come back. And that's equally clear in chapter 10 as well. That's the, the point. The point does not establish what the nature of this falling away is. What it does rule out is a falling away and then coming back and a falling away and a coming back and a falling away and a coming back. That's the point. Whatever this falling away is, it does not give you any support for the view that you can be saved and lost and saved and lost and saved and lost and saved and lost. But one of the views that is pushed pretty hard is that you can be genuinely saved and then still, nevertheless, lost. Now, that has a certain kind of surface usefulness in this passage. It, it, it sounds believable on, on the face of it. But there are two problems with the view just the same. One is that it is very difficult to square with a lot of scriptures elsewhere. More importantly, in some ways, it's very difficult to square with the rest of the book of Hebrews. Because, you see, before you read Hebrews 6, you're supposed to read Hebrews 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. And if you've read Hebrews 3, then you've read Hebrews 3.14, which we looked at just a few minutes ago. In Hebrews 3.14, you have become sharers in Christ, that is, you are truly Christians, if you hold your original conviction steadfast to the end. In other words, the only way that your faith is genuine to believe with, by definition, is if you do persevere to the end. So if you don't persevere to the end, but fall away, then you don't fall under the definition of what a true Christian is to begin with. In other words, before you decide what apostasy is in chapter 6, you're supposed to read chapter 3 about what a definition of a true Christian is. And a definition of a true Christian in chapter 3, verse 6, and in chapter 3, verse 14, is that it is someone who really does persevere to the end. So, so this view that you can be genuinely saved and then fall away is against not only texts in Scripture that seem to suggest that God preserves His own people, but it's even against earlier texts in the book of Hebrews. So what do we make of this? Others suggest that this is merely a theoretical threat. That is, it's a theoretical threat that you could be a genuine believer and then fall away, but in fact, it's an empty set there is nobody under this category because in verse 9 we read, even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are convinced of better things in your case, things that accompany salvation. So it's an empty set. Now the problem is if you make it a completely empty set, then what's the point of putting it in in the first place? And that's also the objection to the next interpretation, some very good people have taken the view, although I think it's a hopeless view, I, I confess, have taken the view that it's an empty threat because it is a threat. In other words, you threaten apostasy unless people persevere. And the result is that genuine Christians don't 
apostatize. They do persevere, and that's why it's an empty set. So you threaten people with the dangerous consequences of falling away, and the result is the threat works, and they don't fall away. So as a result, there are no people who, in this serious sense, fall away. Now that view is held more or less by Tom Schreiner and Ardell Canaday and a bunch of others. Now, on the face of it, although that view has become exceedingly popular in some reform circles in recent years, on the face of it, I have to say it doesn't make sense just at the level of logic because the more you are convinced that that is the correct interpretation, the less of a threat it is. In other words, if you're depending on the threat to guarantee faithfulness and then you give this interpretation of the threat, then it's no longer a threat. Did you see? The more you believe that that's the correct interpretation, the less the interpretation works. The only way it works is if you don't believe that interpretation. (laughs) Which is not a very satisfying interpretation, if you see what I mean. No, 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 no. I think that the way to go in all of this is by remembering the earlier chapters of this book where the author himself has already made a distinction in the case of the ancient Israelites between being taken out of the land and thus participating already in salvation in some sense. They've been saved from slavery, but they have not yet got into the land of promise, into the land of rest. In other words, what is presupposed is that it takes a slightly more complicated view of conversion. Because, after all, there are lots of stories in Scripture of people who seem, at the phenomenological level, at the level of public appearance, to be saved. They have prayed the prayer, they've made a decision, they're in, they're baptized members, they're accepted. But like those in 1 John 2, they went out from us in order that it might be made clear that they never were of us. They went out from us in the sense that they had been members of us at one level, at the phenomenological level, but their going showed that they really were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have remained with us, do you see? Because genuine Christians do persevere. In other words, the question now becomes, is it possible that all of these descriptions can be applied to people who are not truly saved, would have got awfully close? Look, They've been enlightened. Taste of the heavenly gift. Shared in the Holy Spirit. Tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age. Can those things be said sometimes of somebody who is not finally a persevering Christian? (coughs) And I want to say, yes, of course. What do you do with Judas Iscariot? In the days before he betrayed Jesus, he was with the other apostles casting out demons, preaching the gospel. He clearly wasn't differentiable from the other apostles in the views of the other apostles. The other apostles weren't nudging each other and saying, oh, we got a baddie. Did you you know? What do you do with Simon Magus in chapter 8? We're told explicitly that he believed and was baptized, Acts chapter 8. He believed and was baptized. He was accepted as a Christian in good standing. Then Peter arrives 
And Simon is really impressed by the fact that when Peter and John lay hands on people, the Holy Spirit falls on them. And he's still thinking in terms of power encounters or the like. So he's prepared to offer a great deal of money to the Apostle Peter so that Peter can show him the trick. So that he can have the same power to dispense spirit and thus be thought really, really powerful. And what Peter says to him, quite literally in Greek, you can't translate it this way, but this is literally what the Greek says, to hell with you and your money. More prosaically, may you and your money go to hell. Now you don't normally say that to a brother in Christ. But Peter infers from a man who's making a request like this that he's not converted at all. May you and your money go to hell. Even though he has, quote, believed, that's what the text says, and was baptized, and thus accepted as a member in the converted Samaritan community, yet at the same time, Peter's judgment on the situation is just a bit different. In other words, we have to face the fact that it is possible for the Spirit of God to do a convicting work in our hearts so powerful that we actually turn away from sin. We actually ask for baptism. We're accepted as members in good standing. But it's not of the enduring, persevering, long-term sort that guarantees a growth in the knowledge of the Word of God and a persevering to the end. And we've already been told in 3.14 that you have truly been made sharers of Christ if you hold the beginning of your confidence steadfast to the end. Now this still has to be distinguished from other cases where people temporarily fall away. As Peter temporarily falls away in terrible shame and ignominy and Christ carefully and wisely and gently restores him. So you have to acknowledge that there's that kind of falling away. Moreover, this is not discussing the particular case of kids growing up in Christian homes who kick the traces at some point for a while and then show up again. They, they, they made some profession of faith at a Bible camp or the like. And, 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 and then the, the mothers come along later and say, you know, he made a profession when he was 14 years old at a Bible camp and one saved, always saved. And that's where I put my confidence. I know he's living like the world and the flesh and the devil now, but one saved, always saved. Do, 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 do you see? He's not talking even about that kind of situation where there are elements of maturation and, and how it's demonstrated in an independent life that's just not dependent or parasitic upon the family. He's not talking about that. This is serious, hardcore, looking at the gospel in the face and saying, after having already said, I embrace it, I accept it, this is mine, I bow to the Lord Jesus, the Holy Spirit has given me conviction of sin. I have tasted something of the power of the age to come. Looking at it squarely in the face like that and saying, I walk away from it. I don't want it. Christ be damned. And then there is no more repentance. There's no coming back again. None. So it's rightly called apostasy, turning away from the position that you held, precisely because it is a public denial of what you once aligned yourself with. It is apostasis. You are away from that standing. 
But that does not mean that you were converted in the deepest sense. You, you were converted phenomenologically in terms of public appearance. Yeah, 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 you were a Christian. So the Bible can speak of Christians thus falling away. At the phenomenological level, that's what it is. These people were accepted as Christians in good standing. And you have tasted of something. But, but, in the deepest sense, it still falls outside the definition given by chapter 3, verse 14. You've truly become sharers of Christ if you hold your original conviction steadfastly to the end. Now, very briefly, before we try and, try and wrap it up for our own um, pastoral nourishment, what prevents apostasy? That's the fourth question. What prevents apostasy? In some ways, what prevents apostasy is just the flip side of what anchors apostasy. You could go through the opening verses again and say, listen, they become lazy with respect to the word of God, they become foolish, and so on. Now, just do the opposite of that. Focus on the gospel and, and be clear. But verse 9 says, even though we speak like this, that is, we're giving these warnings, we're convinced of better things in your case, the things that have to do with salvation. Now, what does the apostle mean by that? Does he mean... We're so convinced that you guys are safe that you don't need a warning. In which case, why give the warning? Or does he mean, we're convinced that it's impossible for any of the readers of this book ever, ever to fall away because, after all, um, you have begun well, you will end well. No problem. The <coughs> warning is merely a, an empty threat in order to keep you safe. Does that make sense? No, no, no. I think that you have to read verse 9 from a kind of pastoral, rhetorical point of view. Parents do this all the time. Especially with 14-year-olds and 16-year-olds. You know? Um, oh, Dad, you don't trust me. Yeah, I'll trust you. you. You go to that thing. Just be careful. I, I trust you. You're a good kid. I've said I've trusted him. He is a good kid. He could get wiped away by this just the same. In other words, there's a pastoral, rhetorical value in sometimes building people up even while you're still praying to God to have mercy on them because you know that they can wipe out. So you say to your kid going off to university, you know, I, I know that you have trusted Christ and I've seen fruitfulness in your own life in secondary school and, and, and you, you express confidence in Christ and the gospel. I'm just so proud of you. I know you'll do all right. I know you'll do all right. That kind of I know means all things considered, I sure hope so, and I'm praying for you, son. That's what it means. <laughs> do, 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 do you see? So you, you mustn't take every I know outside of its rhetorical context. Uh, he, this writer is trying to be as encouraging as he is trying to be threatening. 
He is threatening because there is a danger. You're no throw. He's actually addressing the people and tells them to their face, they're no throw. You ought to be already teaching. And you're not. You're lazy with respect to the word of God. You're still focused on elementary teachings. You're not growing up. You're no throw, for goodness sake. You're sluggish. But I, I, I know that, 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 that there are better things of you here. Yes, I do. So the same author that is warning them of the threats and telling them the things that he sees flawed in their whole approach to the gospel is the same writer who is telling them that he loves them and he cares for them. And as far as he can tell, they really have begun well and they, they will end up all right. You have to read it within that kind of pastoral rhetorical frame of reference, it seems to me. We are convinced of better things in your case, things that have to do with salvation. After all, God is faithful, even if you're not. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him. Or later on in chapter 10, he'll remind them that they have suffered the loss of some of their possessions and they've cared for those who have been imprisoned and so on, so on, so on. But the point is, verse 11, we want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end so that what, we, what you hope for may be fully realized. We do not want you to become no throy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. <clears throat> now, let me um, leave this passage for a moment and come in at the whole discussion through a dispute in historical theology. It has to do with the doctrine of assurance. You see, when people hear me expound a passage like this, in this particular way, they start saying, yeah, but what about the doctrine of assurance? Doesn't this mean that you can never be fully assured of your salvation because you won't know that you've persevered to the end until the end? So it always becomes presumptuous to say that you know that you're saved. Doesn't this interpretation of the passage and of the corresponding parallel passages, doesn't this really remove any possibility of having genuine Christian assurance? You always live under a certain kind of tenterhooks because you may be among those who become no throy and you don't persevere to the end. That's the objection that is raised. How shall we respond? It's worthwhile backing up for a moment here to remind ourselves about how the doctrine of assurance was developed around the time of the Reformation. In Catholic circles, it actually became a sin, a grievous sin, not just a venal sin, but a sin that could damn you to say that you know you have salvation. Because under standard medieval, post-medieval, early Enlightenment Catholic theology. You, you, you might receive absolution from the priest, but, but then you could go out and commit more sins. And, and then what, what you really need is further penance and, and more absolution from the priest after the offering of further masses. And... and and the sin could be so grievous, it could be a mortal sin that could actually condemn you. So to claim that you know that you're saved now and will be saved forever is, is arrogant. It's, it's a sin of pride. It, it is itself a mortal sin. It's condemning because it presumes that you are in the place of God. And, and you, you don't know whether you'll <coughs> sin and fall away like that. You, you ought to live your life in a certain kind of fear. But of course, the fear itself could be pretty crippling. 
And when your loved ones go off, it becomes a terrific incentive to have lots and lots of masses said, all having to be paid for, to get the beloved soul out of purgatory, where he or she could be suffering for thousands of years, who knows how long, because of sins that they've committed. And you just don't know. They don't know when they died. You don't know after they've died. And to claim that you do know, well, it's arrogant. Besides that, it empties the coffers of the church because you don't longer have to pay for any masses for those who have been, uh, th- those who have died and passed on. Over against that, the reformer said something very different. What the reformer said was, especially Luther now, Calvin was a bit different, especially Luther said, listen, our entire acceptability before God is bound up with Christ's crossword. That's where our confidence rests. If we trust Christ, then we have trusted him who has paid for our sin, borne our guilt in his own body on the tree. His righteousness is ours. Our guilt is his. He has expiated that sin. He has canceled it. He's looked after it. And God's wrath has been turned aside. He's propitiated God. Um, Our sin has been looked after and and God looks at me and what he sees is Christ's righteousness. It's looked after. So I, I am confident that I am saved, not because I've tried harder or because I'm more sincere or because I'm more godly, but because Christ has paid it all. Not to have confidence therefore, that I am truly saved, is really to say that Christ's sacrifice is not sufficient. So for Luther, by and large, Luther (laughs) argues, by and large, that if you as a Christian are lacking assurance, as a Christian, what you need to do is have a better grasp of Christian faith. Assurance is not something different from faith. It's merely the outworking of faith. What you really need is a better grasp of who Christ is, what he has done, the sufficiency of his crosswork. The more you are clear on those points and trust him, the more you have assurance. It's not that you have faith and you add assurance later. Do do, do, do you see? So in other words, Christian assurance is grounded for Luther right in saving faith. If you really do trust Christ, you will have Christian assurance. Calvin was a bit more nuanced. Calvin's view is often presented this way. I don't think this way of presenting Calvin is quite right, but it's important to understand what is regularly said about Calvin. For him, it is often said, assurance rests on a three-legged stool. Number one, the sufficiency of Christ, just like Luther. But number two, it rests also on the work of the Spirit. Passages like Romans 8, 15, God's Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we really are the children of God. And then thirdly, it rests on the transformation of our life. We look at our lives and we we bear witness that our lives have changed. And because our lives have changed, they they provide a kind of testimony to the fact that God's grace has has, has worked out in our lives. It's really there, do you you see? Because our lives have changed. In part, he was basing that on 1 John. For 1 John says that in the first instance we're accepted before God because we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous one, and he's the propitiation for our sins and so on. Yes, yes, yes. But then he says, and if you really are a Christian, number one, you will love the brothers and sisters. Number two, you will believe certain things to be true. And number three, you will obey Christ. So there is a love test, a social test. There is a truth test, a belief test. And there is a moral test, an obedience test. And unless you get three out of three, it's not two out of three or grading on the curve. Unless you get three out of three, you're not a Christian. 
So these public arena things, these changes in your life, they also serve as a proper ground for assurance. So Christian assurance, therefore, for Calvin, it is argued, depends on confidence in Christ, the secret work of the Holy Spirit to confirm within us that we've been converted, and number three, um, a self-observance of the transformation of our own lives by the power of the gospel. Now, I set myself, therefore, to read everything that Calvin wrote on the subject of assurance that I could find in commentaries and the institutes and this sort of thing. And one of the things I discovered is that, yeah, there are three things for Calvin, but they're not equal. It's not like a three-legged stool where all the three legs have exactly the same weight-bearing capacity. For Calvin, a huge percentage, I, I, don't, I don't know how you, 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 you quantify this, 95%, 98%? depends on the finished work of Christ. That is, he's very Lutheran on the emphasis on Christ and his finished work. But then there are these two confirming witnesses as well, two little tiny bitty legs after the big one that has all the load-bearing capacity. Those extra two little confirming bits are the work of the Spirit in our lives and, and the, the, the change that is, 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 is there. Now what do we make of all of this today? I think that where we have gone wrong in much of the Western evangelical world is because many of us, not, a, not all of us, depends on our ecclesiastical backgrounds, but many of us have been taught to give out assurance too soon, too quickly. So many of us, I'm sure, have taken evangelism courses, you know, evangelism explosion or exploring Christianity or... Um, the four spiritual laws or whatever. We've, most of us, I'm sure, have taken evangelism courses. And if we haven't, we ought to. Because even taking a bad evangelistic course is better than not doing any evangelism. Do you see? But many of these evangelistic courses, not all of them, teach you that once you've brought this person to a profession of faith, maybe prayed with them and they've actually asked to receive Christ as their Savior or something like that. Maybe you've taken one of the John Root ones that ends up in John 5.24, something like that. And, and then you're supposed to give the person assurance. You're supposed to say, so then, John, you believe in Christ? Uh, yes. Uh, so what does this text say in John 5.24? Well, it says if you b b believe in Christ, then you have eternal life. So do you have eternal life? Uh, I don't know. Well, what does the text say? Well, the text says if you believe in Christ, you have eternal life. So? Uh, uh, so what? Well, uh, do you believe in Christ? Uh, yes. And the text says if you believe in Christ, then what? What says you have eternal life? So do you have eternal life? Uh, I don't know. And you go around this about 30 times until the penny drops, you see. And we're trying to get the poor blighter to say something like, yeah, 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 I know I have eternal life, not because I feel so different or there's some huge transformation in me. I've made this profession of faith just three minutes ago. Um, but, but, but because I've trusted in Christ, therefore, by Christ's own promise, therefore, I know I have eternal life. It's trying to ground assurance in the promises of Christ rather than in subjectivity or whether you're in a blue funk or it's a bad day or you run out of finance or you flunk your calculus exam or whatever it is, you, you see, you're supposed to ground your assurance in the confidence you have in Christ Jesus. That's the theory behind it all. But in point of fact, when you read through the book of Acts, there are 27 accounts of conversion in the book of Acts of either large numbers or single people. In no case does any uh, Christian leader, an apostle or anybody else, take one of those converts and say, now I'm going to teach you the doctrine of assurance. 
And the fact of the matter is that by teaching assurance too quickly, too reductionistically, too simplistically, we may give some people assurance who have not been truly, deeply converted. They made a profession of faith. But are they converted? When, after all, Judas has his, Jesus has his Judas. Paul has his Demas. Some people do make false professions of faith. They don't stick. Do you really want to give them assurance? So you're, you're a Christian leader in a church, pastor or lay leader of some sort, and somebody comes to you who has been a Christian for 20 years. And this person has been a leader in the church. He or she has led Bible studies and, and witnessed in their family and led others to Christ and so on. But you've noticed that they've been drifting off and drifting off. And now they come to you. And uh, supposing it's a guy who comes to you and he's been a deacon and maybe an elder in the church. And he now comes to you and he says, you know, um, I'm not sure I believe all this stuff anymore. I really don't know what to do. I've... I've um, I've got no assurance of, of, of salvation at all anymore. What do you say? Do you say, let me take you to John 5.24. Do you believe in Jesus? <laughs> then what follows from that? I mean, that, That's not how you handle that. Do you know what you say? With whom are you sleeping besides your wife? That's what you say. When did you stop reading your Bible? That's what you say. How long since you prayed for anybody? Hmm? Besides whether or not you can win the football pools. That's what you say. Because the causes of doubt in this case have nothing to do with whether or not they've grasped the force of salvation or the sufficiency of Christ. It's, it's that their lives have been covered over with a multiplicity of layers of sin. And either they will repent of those sins and regain their salvation and show this to be temporary backsliding, or they will show themselves to have been only superficial people in the first place. To summarize the whole thing, the Bible provides wonderful, rich, unqualified assurance of faith to those who are pursuing Christ. And it strips it all away if you're not. So 1 John, we're told, in 1 John 5, 13, is written to you who believe in the name of Jesus Christ so that you may know that you have life. In other words, John presupposes that it's possible truly to believe in Christ and not know. That is, lack assurance. But these things are written to you who believe that you may know. What things? Well, the things of 1 John, which includes an absolute anchoring in the fact that Jesus is our advocate, he's the propitiation for our sins, and so on. Gospel assurances. But also gospel assurances that are so powerful that they transform the life. There is no truly converted person whose life, in some sense or other, has not changed. That's why Jesus can say, by their fruit you shall know them. 
That's why when somebody in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, when he's shacked up with his stepmother and Paul wants the man to be disciplined, he does so in the hope that he will repent and that his spirit will be saved in the last day. It sounds as if Paul himself doesn't know how it's going to turn out. But he hopes that it will turn out that way. That's why he wants the discipline to be imposed, not only for the sake of preserving the purity of the church, but in the hope that this discipline will have the effect of shocking the blighter and and he'll maybe turn around and actually repent, you see, instead of just causing shame and ignominy in the church and pursuing a relationship that is everywhere condemned in Scripture and in the hope that he'll repent and believe. But it sounds as if Paul is not going to say, but we know, fellow Corinthian believers, that one saved, always saved, and though this fellow is living indistinguishably from the world and the flesh and the devil, we know that he's still a saved brother. We'll treat him like a brother. No, he's to be treated as an outsider. In other words, the Bible systematically takes away spurious confidence if you are not in any sense following Christ. But if in any sense your heart yearns for Christ, Then it keeps talking about the generosity of God, the richness of God, the sufficiency of Christ, the absolution that comes solely from the cross of Christ. You see, all of the conviction and converting assurance of God that you can possibly imagine for those who are contrite and broken in spirit and who tremble at God's word. So let me dare address you directly. If you claim to be a believer but have very little pull toward Christ, pull toward the gospel, pull toward holiness, you just don't care about any of those things, you are in huge danger. Huge danger. You're likewise in huge danger if you know that the gospel is true and you have embraced it in the past but, but, but you can look it square in the eye and you say, yet I prefer my sin and toward my sin I will rush. You are in huge danger. But if you see yourself as an inconsistent Christian, a broken Christian, sometimes a discouraged Christian, frequently a failing Christian, but ultimately your confidence is in Christ, then the gospel provides you with every assurance Every promise that the God who has begun a good work in you will perform it till the day of Jesus Christ. And there will be times in your life where you'll have a foretaste of heaven and feel as if glory is breaking over your soul. And other times where you're shocked at your own fickleness and unbelief and still you want Christ and you turn to him and find that he is far more eager to forgive than you are to ask his forgiveness. And then all the promises of the gospel are yours. To you who believe, he is precious. This I write to you who believe that you may know that you have eternal life. Thus the warnings of the apostasy passages are serious. But they never ever threaten complementary passages that insist that where genuine conversion has taken place, God will preserve it till the day of Christ. But it does ground our confidence forever finally, in him. Let us pray.
without you, Lord God, we would be utterly undone. We thank you that the gospel is so rich, it not only secures our right standing before you, we are justified because of what Christ has done, but it is also the power of God unto salvation, and thus we are transformed by the renewing work of regeneration. We thank you that you persevere with your own blood-bought people in ways that guarantee that they persevere with you. But we do recognize the deceitful tragedy of human hearts that can make professions of faith and taste and dabble and yet somehow not have the full-orbed grace that enables us to persevere. Oh, Lord God, forbid that that should be true of anyone (coughs) in these rooms. But work in us what is powerful with gospel power so that on the last day, None of your genuine people should be missing, but rise with the generation of the saints chosen by God from before the foundation of the world with resurrection existence and all the glory still to come. With such a vision, we fasten our affection and our attention and our, and our hope on Christ again. And we join the church in every age and say, yes, even so, come, Lord Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen.